Welcome to the MSE Moments That Matter podcast series. I'm Claire Hankey, Director of Communications and Engagement across the Integrated Care System in Mid and South Essex. Along with my guests, we'll be looking at the challenges and successes of delivering integrated care for our communities. So sit back, relax and join us as we explore the MSE Moments That Matter. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Bola Olawabi, who is the Director of Health Inequalities at NHS England and Improvement. She also works as a general practitioner in the Midlands. Bola has particular interests in reducing health inequalities through integrated care models, service transformation, and using data and insights for quality improvement. Um, so just just to get us going, um, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Moments That Matter podcast for Mid and South Essex. Um, could we start by finding just out a little bit more about you and your role at NHS England? Thank you so much um, for inviting me to be um, in the conversation today. Uh, I'm Bola Olabi and um, I'm director for the National Healthcare Inequalities Improvement Programme at NHS England. I also work as a GP um, in North East Derbyshire. And so I often will say that my work is, uh, is, is a beautiful triangulation of strategy, policy and the patients that I see every week. Absolutely. <laughs> Bringing it all together and keeping it real. <laughs> Absolutely. Brilliant. That's how I like to think about it. Yeah, no, that's a great way of great way of articulating it. So what we wanted to talk particularly to you about today was was around the kind of um, drive for uh, overcoming barriers and and I think we, we describe it the hashtag of narrowing the gap don't we and uh, and health yes. inequalities and, and why that's become such a a, a big part of what, what integrated care systems are all about um could you just tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest first of all in working in this arena thank you um I guess when I reflect on my professional journey and personal journey, actually, uh, as I said in my blog, there is an intersection there uh, in that I I was confronted very early on um, in life with the stark reality of what happens when you don't have access to high quality healthcare. And I've often shared um, about the story of the fact that my mom died at the age of 48 um, from type two diabetes, which will shock most people Mm. given that's an eminently treatable condition. Absolutely. And the issue there was affordance of um, healthcare. And whilst I acknowledge that we are very fortunate that in the UK, nobody will ever need to think about whether they can afford healthcare or not. The truth remains though, that there are still obstacles in people's way that mean the equity of access is something we need to work on that could be as a result of English not being your first language. It could be as a result of difficulties with articulating your needs 
So English could very well be your first language, but there may be other reasons still, whether as a result of learning disability, struggling with severe mental illness, or you just don't have the vocabulary to express yourself and therefore your needs. And these are real barriers in themselves. It's not all about paying for healthcare. And that's why as a GP, all of my career has been in the northeast of Derbyshire, uh, which is a collection of mostly ex-mining communities uh, with the various difficulties and the challenges um, that they have, or whether as um, a commissioning lead for maternity, children and young people, I found myself drawn mostly um, to teenage pregnant mothers and the help that we could give them and people with learning disability and how we can support them or in my work as a system lead for frailty and for end-of-life care, as national specialty advisor to NHS England for older people um, and integrated person-centered care. I guess you could line up my entire career and draw a solid line across it, and it will be about overcoming obstacles in access, in experience, and in outcomes for those who find themselves at the peripheries of society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so how do we take that personal passion of yours and, and, and the role that you've got now and start to make health inequalities everybody's business, do you think? Because, you know, we, we talk a lot about how the pandemic exposed health inequalities, but if we're honest, they were there long before the pandemic came along. In, in, in actual fact, it exacerbated a lot of the health inequalities already there. So why do we think we've got the opportunity now to, to do things a bit differently and, and to get more people, I suppose, uh, involved in, in tackling health inequalities? I think there's something about speaking to the core of us as a nation and a people. You know, the British core is a core of fairness. And I think when you think about that in the light of the pandemic and the disproportionate impact that it had on different communities, I feel that has really tapped into something really deep yeah. uh, for so many people. I don't think there is any argument right now anywhere that says tackling health inequalities is not the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I think we are in a place where there is a collective agreement that given what the pandemic did, which was to really shine a very harsh light on those pre-existing health inequalities, I sense a social movement that is determined to do something about it. And it's about how do we make it doable for people? It's the making it doable that is important. It's how do we translate intent into action? And I think that's probably a good 
point to come in and just say that's probably the basis for the core 20 plus 5 approach isn't it and for, for our listeners that aren't aware of that if you could just perhaps explain a little bit about what core 20 plus 5 is and how it is about taking you know making that movement and making it much more uh, a delivery vehicle for, for tackling health inequalities I think you've used a brilliant phrase there, a delivery vehicle. That's exactly what it is. Um, So Core 20 plus 5 came about as we considered why it's been difficult to make progress on tackling health inequalities, despite the fact that we have had decades of reports and analysis about health inequalities and what became apparent from talking to many people is that change begins with the first next step and people were saying to us what is the first next step that I can do and when we looked at the data it became clear that the core 20 the 20% most deprived communities, regardless of ethnicity or race, that core 20 plus other groups like homeless people, those in the criminal justice system, some of our coastal communities, those experiencing multimorbidity, you know, multiple long-term conditions, some of our ethnic minority groups, the communities we describe as the plus, it became clear that it's these core 20 plus communities that were having the greatest challenges in terms of access, experience, and outcomes when it comes to health care inequalities. And when we looked at the data further, we realized that there were five clinical areas where if we really focused a lot of attention and energy, we can push forward improvement for the core 20 plus populations. Hence, cancer, cardiovascular disease, chronic respiratory disease, mental health, and maternity were the five clinical areas where the data took us in terms of where you can get the biggest gains. And I've said before that the biggest gains are at the margins, that these five areas are where we can get the biggest gains for the core 20 plus population. And so core 20 plus five, as you said, became a delivery vehicle and a place to start to make it doable for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And, and that point of, about making everybody's business, what, what sort of advice and tips would you give to people to, that kind of are new to this area of, of um, work about you know, taking that first step because it can seem overwhelming because there's so much almost to, to, to do and, and, and finding a place to start is often the way to get going, isn't it? And what, what would tips would you give people to, to, to find a place to start? Absolutely. The first tip is 
don't be a victim of paralysis by analysis. Sometimes we get so stuck in the weeds of the analysis that we lose the energy and the momentum to push forward. That is not to say that data is not important. That is not to say that analysis is not important. But we need a different relationship with the data. Rather than it being just for discussion, let the data move us to action. And I've often talked about the people and the communities that are out there and looking to us to narrow the health inequalities gap. They don't know about the data. What they want to see is our analysis translating into action. They want to see our many policies and policy documents translating into practice for them. These are my tips. I will also recommend use a quality improvement approach because using a quality improvement approach makes something that is enormous turn into something achievable. And there are three quality improvement methodologies I will recommend. The first, use data for improvement. And we've all done it through the COVID vaccines. Remember, we're fresh from that. Yeah. Well, you know, aren't we? We looked yeah, at yeah. the data. But we did. Yeah. Not, we seem to have moved away from that again slightly, don't we? It's it's going back yeah. to what drove us then. Exactly. We just basically followed the data and said which communities are not coming with us. And so we disaggregated our data. So number one, disaggregate your data, whether it's your elective waiting list, whether it's your urgent and emergency care pathway data, whatever the data set, disaggregate it by deprivation and by ethnicity, the inequalities will jump out. And then the second QI methodology is take a strengths-based view. When we find the inequalities through our disaggregation work, don't lurch to solutions. Don't lurch to assumptions about those communities. Let's just draw breath and say, what have we done in the past with these communities that worked and why did it work and i think everybody can relate to covid vaccines that's why i keep absolutely, talking about yeah. it yeah absolutely you know what did you do that made it work then take that strength-based view and then the third qi methodology is co-production yeah talk to the people and the communities that we're trying to help. Because you see, they often have the most creative and the most cost-effective solutions. We worry that they will ask us to build them swanky new hospitals. They won't, <laughs> because our, com our communities are incredibly intelligent. 
they understand our pressures. And if we take time to just have a mutually respectful conversation with them, you will be amazed at the solutions and interventions that they'll come up with. Those are great places to start, I think. Yeah, that, that, that's that's great. And I think there's something about supporting our workforce to, to, to take that different approach and to take that change of kind of culture, I think, that we traditionally, as you say, jumped in with interventions that because we, we, we kind of want to make the difference but often come up with the solution without the, the work of our communities together alongside. And you're, you're right, the work we did locally around vaccinations absolutely improved and, and drove forward because we worked with our communities to design the solutions, yes. putting on clinics that where they were rather than expecting to come to us all the time. It's all, it's all of those things that, that really make the difference, don't they, and help to, to, to turn yes. the dial on, on this sort of thing. Um, absolutely, Yes. In terms of your role as a GP, how, do, how does health, health inequalities and, and the, the experience of your patients on a day-to-day basis support you to kind of look at it on the wider scope? Because you're, you're at every level almost of the system that we, that we operate in, but you're, you're, you're personally operating at all of those levels of the system. How, do, how does that drive um, your, kind of your, your frontline experience into the kind of policy and strategy world? And I think the way it drives it is because my strategic and policy work, I hope, is driven by the voices of the people that I work with. An example, one of the things that I started noticing was the issue with prescriptions. And many of my patients who were very keen are very keen to please me and other healthcare professionals. But actually struggling with, we we talk about compliance. You know, are they compliant with their medications? It's something we say a lot. But actually, it's not so much compliance, it's whether they are able to. And so the more I noticed from the conversations I was having with my patients, whether because their high blood pressure was just not coming down um, as it should, for example, and starting to discover that either they just weren't taking the medications at all or they were taking less than the dose prescribed just to make it stretch further. That led me to a whole series of conversations in a policy context around Are there things we can do to help? And I discovered that prescription exemption certificates, for example, it's something that we're already providing, but not all the communities that could benefit from it are taking them up. So that's a real example of where my work as a GP opened my eyes to a very real issue that people were facing and making the connection back in to say, but we do have this fantastic mechanism of prescription exemption certificates, maternity exemption certificates. So my job is to say to my other colleagues, you know, in patient-facing roles, please remember to mention it, you know, in case people hadn't thought about it. That's just a practical example of how you do the... Um, you know the the the, the front line into policy policy back to front yeah, line yeah. translation absolutely and and it's 
you know, sometimes knowledge is the biggest barrier, isn't it, to, to accessing healthcare? Because yeah. if you don't know what's out yeah. there and you don't know, you need that signposting, signposting in. Um, well, we, we're kind of almost two months into um, statutory ICSs being formed and obviously health inequalities are, are, are one of the kind of key... Uh, key remits, I suppose, of, of 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 integration of the integrated care systems. How how can we how can we make health inequalities front and centre of that integration agenda? Given that you know integrated care systems themselves are still quite large and complex, how do we really kind of get that movement going within a within a system? So I think the great thing is all the ICS chairs, chief executives. Um, and their boards, when I've heard them speak, I have been heartened by the absolute commitment and focus to tackling health inequalities. I think it really is, is it's wonderful to hear them, um, you know, speak in that way. And yes, you're right that integrated care systems have four key purposes. And purpose number two is to tackle inequalities in access, experience, and outcomes for their population. That's a fantastic place to start. They then also now have the legal underpinning for that. So the 2022 Health and Care Act has some really strong health inequalities duties on integrated care boards. And I would encourage all ICBs to familiarize themselves with that legislative framework and what it asks them to do in tackling health inequalities. I think there is an opportunity as the ICBs and the ICSs design their assessment frameworks. So they will have board assurance frameworks. They will have board assessment frameworks that is a real opportunity to hardwire health inequalities measurements into the ICB and the ICS assessment and assurance frameworks. Because when they do that, they will have a measurable way of working out how they're progressing. The other opportunities are Every ICS will now be developing their five-year strategies. Every ICB will be developing their ICB delivery plans. And I think by being intentional and proactive to put some really practical, tangible actions for tackling health inequalities across those really important policy vehicles, it will set them on a very strong and assured path to this. And the final thing I will say is about our ICSs recognizing their role as anchors. You know, anchor institutions, anchor systems, the decisions they make in relation to employment, how they use their estates, how they procure goods and services, they can leverage their power and their influence in that way as an anchor institution and systems to make some real inroads for their communities in narrowing health inequalities. 
Yeah, great. And and we were privileged to welcome you down to Mid and South Essex a little while ago, I think, to see some of our work that the Foundation Trust, the Hospital Trust, had been doing around the anchor work. What struck you by, by the kind of programme that and work that you saw there happening in Mid and South Essex? I mean, it was such a rewarding day um, just seeing. It's it's the array uh, of, of work that was going on that really struck me, and I'll pull out two in particular. One, the work that was being done around supporting uh, people uh, with neurodivergence into work. I met a fantastic young man. I think his name is Elliot, if I remember it correctly, in the pharmacy department, doing a sterling job, you know, in the dispensary and getting so much from it. You know, the beam on his face, it was contagious. (laughs) Um, It was just wonderful to see this person, he described himself as having global developmental delay, but actually he'd found his niche because the trust had created this opportunity for him to play to his strength. That will stay with me forever, actually. The other thing that I saw was the community hub. So spending time in the afternoon in the community hub and watching people from the community walk off the street into the hub. Um, They had the, um, the digital wings. So these were people who had been trained themselves from the community, off the community to help other people in the community with their, you know, their digital literacy needs. But it wasn't just doing that as an end in itself. They had a portal that linked directly to the trust's vacancy pages. Wow. (laughs) Which means, you know, people not only gained, you know, digital literacy, they gained it as a means to an end to be able to find suitable positions with the organization. And I met three people who had been on that journey and secured jobs that they are very proud of. And, you know, I could go on about that day. It was just absolutely fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful that it seemed to have made such an impression on you. Because I think that's the thing. Sometimes we think they're small things, but but for actually the people on the other end of the journey or the tail, it makes such a huge difference to their life, doesn't it? And actually, if everybody could could go and see these people and feel the energy that's around that, I think absolutely you you wouldn't think it was a hard thing to tackle in that sense. You'd find ways because it does make such a rewarding difference to, to the lives of the community. Absolutely. And can I just also celebrate the work that colleagues in the Basildon and Torak um, Trust were doing? We visited their pediatrics oh, yes, yes. Um, sickle cell unit and I had the opportunity of talking to some of the patients and their, and their parents and how much it meant to people that that care pathway had been refined and improved to make it so much more seamless for them, Um, you know, really empowering them. There was a 16-year-old young man who talked about how much difference it had made to his mother who could now go to work because he could independently bring himself to the center um, because of the work the trust had done. You know, 
Pat Day, some brilliant work. Please keep going. Uh, honestly, and be proud. Be rightly proud um, of what you are achieving. As I said, uh, across a whole array of ways to really improve access improve experience and outcomes for your communities you should be so proud thank you that's fantastic thank you and actually the name of this podcast series is the moments that matter and I think there I think we can absolutely pinpoint some of those moments that matter because actually sometimes we talk a lot about the architecture about policy about strategy but for, for me it's about telling the story of the people where we have made that moment that matter and made a difference to their lives and through, yes. through, through the way we come together and, and, and surround these issues and challenges and, and work to, to find a common solution. So that's really great. Thank you so much, Bola. Um, I, I think you. that's it for us today. And thank you so much for finding the time to join us. I really do appreciate it. It's been fascinating talking to you. I know you have a busy, busy schedule, so I'm really pleased that we were able to, to get a spot with you just to talk about this because it's such an important topic. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, um, you know, talking to you. And thank you so much um, for for the invitation. Look, I am ever more confident. Each one of these convers- conversations gives me confidence that we will achieve that shared vision of equitable access, excellent experience, and optimal outcomes for all. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Good to talk to you. Look out for the next episode when we explore more MSE, Moments That Matter.